If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Military history is generally assumed to be a male domain. But according to Sarah Percy, author of a new book, Forgotten Warriors, this popular perception ignores hundreds of years of women on the front line. Speaking with Emily Briffitt, Sarah considers some of the core roles that women have played in warfare through history, from daring revolutionaries and cross-dressing combatants to business-minded camp followers and forgotten commanders. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be delving into the forgotten history of women on the front line. So can you tell us a little bit about the mythos that has grown up surrounding women's roles in warfare? There are a lot of myths about women's participation in combat. And probably the biggest one is that women weren't on battlefields and that the, the battlefield is sort of the quintessentially all-male, totally masculine space. But actually, if we look back historically, there's quite a significant period of time when women are on the battlefield in really large numbers. I mean, they're not all fighting, 
but they are there, they are present, and, and fighting women are also on the battlefield, albeit in smaller numbers. So it's a much more sort of co-ed experience than you might expect. How did an all-male battlefield come to be understood as normal then? It's a really interesting question. I think it actually has to do with the overpowering cultural influence that World War I and World War II have in the West in particular. And so World War I is really important because prior to the turn of the 20th century, so around the late 19th century, that was when we started to see these women who were on the battlefield disappear. So World War I is actually, in some ways, the first big war in a long time where there haven't been any women kicking around, where the women are all behind the lines. And in fact, the term home front is a term that didn't exist until World War I. Um, the idea that women were on the home front and men were on the battlefront or they were at the front lines. But World War I was for men who fought in it, usually one of two things, either the most horrible experience of their lives, in which case, why would you inflict that on your mother, your sister, or your daughter? Or for a lot of men, it was also the, the defining moment of their lives. And it was a defining moment they experienced entirely in the company of other men. So you get this, this story that begins to build about the powerful bonds between men. And that becomes even more significant in World War II because the U.S., who is, of course, the greatest victor of the war in many ways, largely does fight its war without women. Um, geographically speaking, the U.S. is so isolated from the war, they don't experience manpower pressure, they don't mobilize women. Everybody else, actually, in the European theater pretty much does end up at least thinking about mobilizing women, and in some cases mobilizing them in large numbers. So the cultural experience of those two wars, and in particular the idea that you can win a war without having women in your military, and that war then becomes this very special place where only men are doing actual fighting, I think has become culturally very dominant. Did the way that what was deemed appropriate for women to do affect what they were actually able to do and what they weren't able to do? Yeah, it absolutely does. So the picture of what a feminine woman should be like becomes all about delicacy and frankly about frailty. And it, that becomes increasingly the case throughout the 19th century. And by the 20th century, this is where we go. And then actually, you only need to look at women's fashion to sort of see that, right? This is the era of the super tight corset where people would be fainting because they couldn't get enough air. So you have this movement that femininity is a very particular thing and it involves the need to be protected and it involves being very delicate. Now, as soon as you have that, then the idea of putting women into warfare becomes totally outlandish. It's completely crazy. And you get that simultaneously with what I was talking about before about, um, about the experiences of World War I and World War II and how they begin to really sort of overwhelmingly tell this story that war is this exclusively masculine business. It's the most masculine business that you can have. So in world, by the time World War II rolls around in particular, you've got a big problem because you've got states that are fighting an absolutely total war. They have to mobilize all available resources. But there's been a lot of talk about how incapable women are. So what are you going to do? How are you going to mobilize the women that you plainly need in order to fight your war while trying to keep them out of combat because you also now profoundly believe they can't do it? And what's interesting is all of the major powers in World War II, they have a different solution to this problem. And it's clearly related basically to how desperate they are, but not entirely. So the Soviets have a very different conception of womanhood. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is because that sort of 
middle class, upper middle class, upper class version of femininity didn't exist in pre-revolutionary Russia because there were not very many women who weren't peasants. And peasant women did all kinds of butchering, chopping things up, carrying heavy loads, were clearly very physically capable. And in fact, Russia does mobilize women in combat in World War I as well as World War II. Um, in Britain, you kind of get an interesting halfway house where you get women who are allowed to do things for the war effort as long as it's not combat. And again, that definition of combat is very clearly manipulated. So you have women working in anti-aircraft batteries and they're allowed to do absolutely everything to make the anti-aircraft battery work except for to fire the guns. And there had to be men to do that. And what I find astonishing is they weren't even allowed to guard. They were given guard duty at the anti-aircraft battery. The men did it with guns and the women did it with shovel handles because they weren't allowed to carry firearms. It was deemed that the public would not cope with that. And then in the German case, you get, um, they have their manpower requirements are horribly limited at the beginning of the war because they're relying on both victory and then later on slave labor. And so they don't need to mobilize women to the same degree, but even towards, it's only right at the very end of the war. So the Nazis are mobilizing boys, really young boys, before they will officially mobilize adult women. And that has a lot to do with with cultural beliefs and propaganda, particularly on the Nazi side, about what the appropriate role of womanhood was. And just before we dive right back into the history, just to quickly go into it, when exactly did we see the end of combat exclusion? So the combat exclusion varies. So the combat exclusion after World War II Countries have to, for the first time, they have to write down the rules about what women were and weren't allowed to do in the war because women had been mobilized as part of state militaries in support roles and in some cases in combat, which we might talk about. So they write down the rules and nearly everywhere in the Western world, the rules are very specific that women will not participate in combat and that they are actually legally barred from doing so. So that legal bar persists from the end of World War II right up through to the late 1970s and early 1980s, where in some countries it begins to change. So the Nordic countries, Canada begin to change that policy through the 1980s. And then the big shift happens after 2000, and in particular, after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been around for a bit. So in 2011, 2012, the US and Australia permit women in combat roles, and Britain's very slow. It doesn't happen in the UK until um, 2018, the formal announcement is made. So that's surprisingly late, really. It's unbelievably late. So if I were to ask you to think off the top of your head of a profession that a woman was legally barred from doing, not just discouraged or, you know, not very many women doing it, but actually legally told you cannot do it. There basically aren't any other ones short of maybe a religious thing like a Catholic priest. And in fact, in the U.S., they were able to put women astronauts into training in the late 1970s. So 30 years before, they were able to even consider the possibility of putting women in combat. And I find this a really interesting puzzle about how is it possible that we can have this push towards gender equality and women breaking down barriers in every imaginable space, except in this one, where it seems to be okay to persist with what, on the face of it, is active discrimination on the grounds of gender. I think today we're not just going to be strictly talking about enlisted troops. We're also going to be covering such a broader range of roles and scenarios. But one of the questions I've got for you is you make an important distinction in your book about the definition of combat, don't you? 
Yeah, well, I think that combat, actually, we all think we know what combat is, right? Like combat is when you do the actual fighting part. But what's really interesting is as soon as you have a combat exclusion, and that combat exclusion runs alongside the reality that there are women in your military any, anyway. So let's think of pretty much every Western military you can imagine in the 1980s onwards. There are women there. They're just not allowed to fight. And that means that you have to define combat in a very specific way, largely to prevent women from engaging in it. And this means that you get all these bizarre rules, like a carpenter is classified as a combatant in the U.S. Army for a very long period of time. But a woman who might be driving a truck and might have to pick up a gun and shoot the enemy is not a combatant. And this all came to a very messy state of affairs during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where women were deployed, they were on the front lines, they were doing things like driving trucks in convoys, and they, they, weren't, they weren't allegedly combatant, but they were being decorated for military valor, because of course, if your convoy gets attacked, you're not going to be like, oh, oops, sorry, I'm not actually a combatant. I'll just stand here with my gun and get shot at. And so predictably, women did engage the enemy, and they did so with great success. And as I said, were in many cases awarded with medals for valor, while allegedly not being in combat. Your book starts with a really interesting case, that of the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior at Berka on one of the Swedish islands. Now, can you just introduce us to this fallen soldier? In the 19th century, archaeologists started to excavate what was a very significant Viking trading post in Sweden. And they knew it was very significant because they were finding lots of evidence of sort of everything, of quite a significant town, and also quite a lot of fortifications. As we all know, the Vikings uh, did a lot of fighting. And so they found lots of fortifications, and they found a particularly intact and impressive warrior's grave that was full of all of the sorts of things that if you were an archaeologist would be your dream to find in a grave. The warrior was there with all kinds of weapons, um, all kinds of armor, all kinds of things that indicated that it wasn't just a warrior, but it was a really important and high status warrior. And then everybody just sort of, this was in the 19th century, the grave got named, everybody was very excited about it, and nobody ever checked to see whether or not the warrior was a man or a woman, because of course it was a warrior, it must be a man. In the 1970s, someone took a bit of a closer look at the skeleton and said, you know, actually, this, this doesn't look quite right. It, it, it appears to have some female characteristics. But then, astonishingly, nobody really did anything about it until reasonably recently, sort of in, in the 2000s, people began to take a closer look. And DNA analysis has become sufficiently advanced that they were able to test the bones. And, of course, they discovered that the warrior was a woman. And you can then cue sort of shock and horror among some segments of the archaeology community where they started to ask questions like, well, maybe a skeleton got mixed up in there. And the archaeologists did the study said, no, that's not it. And there were all of these sort of increasingly ridiculous propositions being put forward to explain away this fact that this Viking warrior's body, who no one had ever considered was anything other than a warrior for well over 100 years, had suddenly started to question it only because there was a belief that there was no chance that this person could have been a woman. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So, how common is it for cases of mistaken identity to actually mask female military contributions? Well, mistaken identity, hard to say. So we do know that, for example, that there are also lots of warrior greys in Asia Minor that are women and they are buried with weapons and they're treated as women. The guiding assumption of a lot of archaeologists has been that if a, if a body shows signs of having experienced violence and it's female, that it's a victim and not, not a fighter. And of course, we don't know for sure whether or not that's true. We do know there is a very strong history of cross-dressing. So this isn't inadvertent, this is deliberate. So this is women who dressed up as men in order to fight. And it's a fascinating phenomenon. Again, there are not, I'm not going to try and tell you, sadly, there is no secret entire army of cross-dressed soldiers. But nearly every European army contained cross-dressed soldiers. The American, um, the American military, both the Civil War and the American Revolution contained cross-dressed soldiers. And it seems to have been a reasonably common phenomenon. Now, the nature of disguise is such that we'll never actually know for sure how many of these women were, because we do know that many of them were never uncovered while they were fighting. So it was only actually after the war concluded that they, they came forward for a variety of different reasons, often about accessing a pension, right? They were often like, hey, I was a soldier. Where is my pension? Then it came out afterwards that they were soldiers or after they were wounded or died. So there could have been more of these women that we don't know about. And it's actually very likely that there was. Do we get any insight into what these women's motivations were in this at all? Women were motivated to fight dressed up as men for all kinds of different reasons. So a lot of them were the same reasons that men wanted to fight. Perhaps we see upsurges of this out of patriotism. So you see women who say, you know, this is a significant war and I want to go join it and they won't let me do it. So therefore I'm going to dress up and trick everyone. One of the things that I found most astonishing when I was doing the research for this book is that it is quite likely in many cases that women were safer in the military than they were out of the military. 
because being a woman, particularly a poor woman, was a very unsafe proposition in most major European cities through most of history. So actually, if you were in a community that was going to look after you, you were probably better off in that community than you were out of it, even if you were at war, which gives you kind of a horrifying insight into how dangerous life must have been outside of war. Um, and then you get all the classics like adventure, definitely sex. So definitely both the ability to live freely and pursue a life without constraint is very common in cross-dressed soldiers. And again, that also shows you how constrained a woman's life dressed as a woman was, is that they could pursue a life, um, they could pursue a life without constraint, they could have adventures, they could do all kinds of things. And some of the women, when we read accounts, would clearly be what we would call in modernized trans. They are clearly women who identified as men. Now, these categories, you have to be very careful because they don't neatly map onto historical understandings. But there is an element in, in some of the cases where a woman clearly like just refuses ever to take off her male clothes, refers to himself as a man. You know, it, it's a very, to modernize, that's very much what it sounds like. But you get a full spectrum um, of, of different motivations. Do we see any female regiments or female bands of soldiers or people getting involved in warfare at all? Do we see that? Yes. So we see both the proposal for the regiment. So women propose regiments on multiple occasions and again, typically out of patriotism. So during sort of moments of revolutionary fervor, you often get ladies who come up and say, well, look, we're perfectly capable of doing this. Um, there's a lot of women's organizations in in the UK just before World War I where people are saying things like, well, I have a perfectly good group of armed women and I would be delighted to come and provide you support for the war. Most of the time, the men who are in charge just go, oh, yeah, no, no, thank you. But there is a very famous exception, which is Dahomey, which it was the name for what is now Benin in, in West Africa. And it had a very significant tradition of not just a female regiment, but the, the Kingdom of Benin's elite troops were in fact female. So the SAS equivalent are the, the, these women, um, 19th century European observers called them Amazons. Um, the historical record more accurately refers to them as Mino or Agoji, but they were an all-female regiment that operated in Benin from the very late 18th century but really was a 19th century phenomenon. And in fact, when France tries to take Benin as part of the scramble for Africa, where everybody was trying to get colonial possessions, the French Foreign Legion fights quite considerably against this women's regiment, and we're, we're very impressed with them. How unusual was it to see women in positions of command? So in that regiment, one of the things that the European observers find very striking is the fact that there are women, there, there appear to be women in command. Because actually, historically, this is probably the rarest instance of, of women in combat or women in, on the battlefield that we, we see, is it's unusual to be a female general. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. It's unusual to be a general. And to be a general, you have to have combat experience, and people have to know you have combat experience, and you have to have all those attributes of leadership that people expect to have. So understandably, when women aren't officially fighting in large numbers in most places, you don't see many generals you do get some very striking examples. So a lot of them are ones that are more well-known to us in, in Western countries, like Joan of Arc. Um, she is a fascinating case because 
actually there's been a lot of military analysis done of what Joan was doing and and she knew what she was doing as a general and the only way that her contemporaries could explain this was if you were French she was divinely inspired and if you were British if you were English rather she was a witch because again you couldn't possibly explain how a woman could be really good at military stuff unless you have magic as the uh, as the answer and uh, Boticea um, another very famous example um that people know about. Again, her military prowess was kind of explained away by the fact that she was a barbarian. She was from a culture so distinct and so other that that you wouldn't actually want to emulate that in any way for yourself. But the one that's most interesting, which I think is probably least known to observers in the West, is probably my favorite, <laughs> is Queen Jinga, who was queen of what is now in, in an area which is now Angola, so central West Africa. And she rose to power through the 17th century, but ruled for about 40 years. So about the same period of time as Queen Elizabeth I, but probably no one has ever heard of Jenga, and we've all heard of Queen Elizabeth I. But she ruled in a context where, honestly, it makes Game of Thrones look like kindergarten. There are people trying to kill each other all the time. Her country is perpetually at war. She is constantly juggling alliances, strategy, playing off local players, playing off colonial powers. Both the Dutch and the Portuguese have interests in this area at the time and does that for longer than anyone else. So there's a great history of everybody bumping off the competition in, in this part of the world. And there are sort of multiple rulers before her and there are multiple rulers after her. So to hold power in that context at that time is genuinely extraordinary. And the reason why we don't hear about her, two reasons, race and gender, right? So you get the European observers who don't take her seriously because she is not a white woman and she's not behaving like any kind of women these people have ever encountered before. So there's a lot of emphasis on her um, rapacious sexual appetite. There's a lot of emphasis on practices which are shockingly alien to Western eyes. And so people just say, well, yeah, I mean, they have this queen, but she also does things like grind babies into a magic paste to render her immortal. And that's really bad. So why would we take her seriously as any kind of leader? From the sounds of it, it seems though women in combat are almost at risk of either being written off as a mistake or an, a different interpretation or, or perhaps even an exception to the rule. Could you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that I discovered and I came to feel very strongly about when I was doing the research for the book was that all of these examples of women who were doing amazing things on battlefields were often forgotten, just sort of people, they fell by the wayside, people forgot about them but more often deliberately misrepresented and sometimes actively suppressed. So there is very much a denial of this sort of thing ever happening. And a really interesting example of this is women in the American Civil War. So there is an awful lot of cross-dressed fighting in the American Civil War. An awful lot about it is known at the time. And historians working on this era pointed out that in the immediate post-Civil War period, so in the late 19th century, these women got a huge amount of praise for being heroines, for being um, part of this defining moment of American life. But as time went on, they started being treated with more and more disdain. So by the 1960s, there are 
well-respected historians who say, well, look, they were all either lesbians or they were insane, all of these cross-dressed women. And it's no longer something that was worthy of praise. It was something that, that was sort of ridiculous and suggestive of mental illness or some sort of serious problem. And I think that that kind of exemplifies a lot of these things. The other case that we haven't talked about yet is the Soviet women in World War II, where there are about 800,000 to a million women under arms fighting for the Red Army in World War II, doing everything. So we have people in trenches, we have people driving tanks, we have people flying fighter planes, flying bomber planes, every combat role you can think of. One of the most decorated snipers of the war is a woman. But after the war, they are not allowed to march in the victory parades in Moscow, even right at the very end of the war. And they were formally discouraged from speaking about their military service. And in fact, it's only because of a work of a very pioneering Soviet journalist who went out and took an oral history of a lot of these women in the 1980s that we have access to some of their stories because they were discouraged from telling them. Do we see these common threads worldwide? Yes. So deliberate suppression and convenient forgetting, I would say, are absolutely common because what do all of these militaries have in common? They all have the fact that they are trying to keep women out of the military. So by the time we roll around to the 1970s, 1980s, the women's movement has taken off. There are women breaking down every imaginable barrier you can think of. And of course, it's not much use to you if you're a military to be able to say, oh, well, yeah, women did fight before, but that, that, was, that was different. They would much rather say, no, women have never fought before. And um, so in most cases, yes, you, you do get this deliberate forgetting. And you get, you know, you get people, the U.S. has many different congressional inquiries and hearings on the subject of whether or not women should participate in combat. And nearly all of them, somebody will say something like, well, you know, women have just never done this. Or only in a country that was seriously barbarian and wrong would you get them to put women into combat because how dangerous and unfortunate that would be and and of course the women wouldn't be able to cope and it's not just the evidence of women's fighting that gets suppressed it's the evidence of women's physical capacity to be on a battlefield full stop that gets suppressed and one of the things that we have lots of evidence of remember I said before that the battlefield is actually a surprisingly co-ed place there are lots of women on it those women may not have been fighting, but they were experiencing all of the same level of physical hardship and danger as the men around them. And nobody ever said, oh, look, they're not going to be able to cope because it was plain that they were there and that they were coping. You're talking about the battlefield being surprisingly co-ed. Were women still tied to the usual rules of society on the battlefield? No, and I think that was part of the, probably part of the attraction. Just like being a cross-dressed soldier gave you a freedom that you wouldn't have Being a part of these battlefield communities and supporting soldiers meant that you were also, you got the safety benefits that we talked about before. Yes, it was dangerous to be on the battlefield, but it was also really dangerous just to be a woman. And you also get the fact that you could operate outside society's normal rules. And particularly, you had the advantage of being able to pursue a business. So a lot of these women who are on the battlefield, they're there providing services. Now, Military historians of a certain generation would tell you that they were all prostitutes. Um, They probably, many of them probably were, 
but they were also doing things like laundry and they were also doing provisioning. So a big thing is the sale of alcohol, food and other things that soldiers needed because militaries weren't capable of providing that on their own. So they had um, sort of entrepreneurs who followed along who provided those services. So how integral would you say camp followers are to the war efforts? So camp followers are absolutely essential. So from the, about 1650 onwards, um, there's a historian called John Lynn who calls this the campaign community, where militaries were basically the size of small cities on the move, and they had very minimal capacity to provision themselves. And without the camp followers, the people doing the laundry, providing the, the, providing the food, providing the water, providing the alcohol, they would have ground to a halt. They, they couldn't possibly have continued to fight. And then women's presence sort of diminishes and changes, but they are still very, very much there. And in fact, in the French military, they have this fantastic system of vivandière and cantinière, so food providers and drink providers. And the vivandière and cantinière are still in the French army until the turn of the 20th century. So World War I is actually the first time that they're not there. In the French military. So are these almost those entrepreneurial opportunities that you spoke about? Absolutely. So, and it was a career that was often passed down from mother to daughter because they would often have children and then the daughters would be brought along and they would continue on. Um, They would continue on the tradition. And food and drink, I don't want it to sound like, I don't know, where you get your little aperitif and a snack. This is absolutely essential. There was no other food. So if you didn't have these women there, then your soldiers weren't getting fed. And water is totally critical on the battlefield because people were often fighting in extremely hot conditions. So the women who are providing water, they're not standing at the back. They're actually carrying these supplies, often in the thick of the fighting itself. So the idea that somehow, you know, women are too delicate to survive being on the battlefield actually contradicts reality in quite a significant way. One of the other things we need to discuss is that women's participation in wars was not just about the offensive, but also about the defensive. And I think you talk about it in your book as being under siege and how vital their role was in this as well. So one of my favourite facts that I discovered while I was doing my research, one of the things that I found most interesting was that sieges were the most common type of warfare in Europe for a very long period of time. So from the 15th century for a couple hundred years, the siege is the most common type of warfare there is. They outnumber battlefield battles by about 10 to 1. But women don't fight officially in battlefields, or at least not very much, although we know we've just been talking about all the places they did. But women absolutely do fight in sieges. But again, this is another example we can write off because we can say that's not a proper battle. That that's that's something different. It's not on a battlefield. So sieges are common because um, you can defend a city for quite a long time against against an aggressor. And once that starts happening, you need everybody in the city to be able to fight and defend the city. And of course, it would also be natural if you lived in the city to want to defend it. So we have women fighting in sieges in almost every siege you can think of, and that's everything from chucking rocks and oil at the enemy to standing on the ramparts with a firearm or a piece of artillery and shooting it. And we also have these great examples from the English Civil War of women on both sides who are in command of grand houses, usually because their husband is away, and they end up having to lead the siege. And again, we have a lot of evidence to show that part of being a good lady of the house 
was the ability to provision your house. And provisioning is not just sugar and eggs and flour. It is firearms, shot. How are you going to defend the house? Do you need to have an understanding of this as part of basic household management? It appears that you did because it appears that women were actually very good at it. Can you tell us, are there any like really standout stories in this part of the history? Yes, there is a fantastic that the Countess of Derby is during the English Civil War. She is a French woman and her name is Charlotte de la and but she is married to an Englishman and she is in charge of a grand house called Latham House. Latham House is not a house, it's a castle. Uh, at the time, it's very, very large. And it is a clear military target um, for the Cromwellian troops. So the, she's on the royalist side. And she ends up having to defend the house against the onslaught of these of these roundhead troops. And she does a very good job. And we have lots of accounts from the people in her household about what a good job that she did. So they have artillery pieces they managed to shoot back. She's got this very loyal soldier who writes this wonderful memoir. He says, look, you know, she was there with her two daughters. Everyone was very brave. And he said, the little girls didn't like the grenades, basically. But other than that, they were very brave. And his point is that no one really liked grenades. So, you know, it's understandable that these small children wouldn't have enjoyed the experience. But he makes it very clear that she is in command, that she is leading the troops, that she is making the decisions about what they should do, when they should sally forth, when they should defend all of these military decisions. And even the other side, so there's press accounts of her on both sides. And of course, the royalists think she's wonderful. And the opposition thinks that, you know, she's basically, her husband must be really pathetic to allow her to wear the trousers in such, in such a notable fashion. But we also have uh, her counterpart, which is on the other side. So again, on the Cromwellian side, Lady Brilliana Harley, who is also in the same position. Her husband is away. She ends up leading troops against a siege and she does extremely well and defends her home, but she falls ill and dies of sort of natural causes. But her body is not treated very well when the house is ultimately seized by the royalists. And so, you know, we have these, these are women who in any other situation, if it were not a siege, we would perceive them to be leaders and commanders, but it's not a proper, quote unquote, proper battlefield. So we can write off their experiences. But talking about defence, we can make it even broader than not just defence of the home, defence of the area, but also people like rebels. And can you tell us about their role? And how did women participate in that kind of combat and conflict? So we have a long historical through line of seeing women who come to the defence of their home or their society in quite a significant way. And we see that through sieges, as I've said, sieges in, in most European contexts for quite a long period of time. But we also see something similar, which is women in rebel and revolutionary movements. This seems to be an area in which a wider society is more likely to accept the idea of women fighting. And that's probably because we kind of accept the fact that a woman would want to defend her home and her children. And so if you're going to pick up arms to defend against something that that's different than becoming a regular soldier. And of course, in a lot of these rebel and revolutionary movements, they're all about breaking the rules. That's why you're having a revolution. So you're willing to sort of check out all of those social ideas that might tell you that women are too delicate or too weak or inappropriate to be fighting. They're more willing to break the rules. So we absolutely see this as a through line. So we see it um, in 
early revolutionary movements, but we start starts to gain a lot of speed after World War II when the wars associated with the process of decolonization begin to take off. And also when we have a high incidence of civil war, particularly through the 1970s and 1980s, but ongoing. So it's very common to have women in rebel movements. Again, lots of great research done on this shows that women typically join them for exactly the same reasons that men do. Um, they believe in the cause. They want to have an adventure. Being a soldier is exciting. It gets you out of often very conservative societies. So one of the things that's fascinating about women rebels is you get them in societies which are otherwise extremely conservative. And perhaps the most currently famous are women who fight in the various Kurdish groups um, all over uh, sort of broader Kurdistan. And they we had large numbers of women fighting against ISIS, which is sort of the ultimate slap to a very patriarchal, uh, extreme patriarchal movement. In the, in the very long history of combat, of war, of women being on the front line, how much agency would you say that they've had? I actually think women have had a really surprising amount of agency. Part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was to tell a story where women just weren't victims of war. Because, of course, we do know that women are, to a horrifying degree, victims of war. Women and children um, are absolutely the, the most impacted group and horrible things can happen to them. But it's not just that. It's also a story where women make their own decisions, where women decide that despite all of the rules arrayed against them, they're going to ignore them or they're going to try and change it, or they're going to push back. And that might be pushing back by dressing up as a man in order to fight. It might be by setting up there are all of these fantastic ladies associations in both the US and in Britain, particularly around World War One, where women are setting up drilling groups. They're organizing themselves to be deployed. Now, they don't get deployed militarily, but in the UK, actually, the nucleus of the women's auxiliary services in World War I are, the, are these ladies who just set up and did it on their own. And so we can either look at the stories of war as women's victimhood, or we can actually say, if we go back and look at it, these are women who are absolutely making decisions for themselves, and they are absolutely participating on their own terms, and they are doing it for all the same reasons that we grant men to do it. It's not happening to them. They are doing it because they are choosing to participate. Why do you think it's then crucial almost to bring these stories of female agency to the forefront now? Well, I think we started out with you pointing out that you were quite shocked that, that to hear that, that Britain only allowed women in combat roles in 2018. And one of the things that, that I kind of actually have changed my mind on from when I started researching the book until when I finished writing it was that when we deny women combatant status in warfare, when we say to them, you cannot fight, it is an unbelievably effective way of saying, you may think that you are equal. You may think that you can do everything in the same way a man can do, except for this. This is one thing, combat, that you cannot do. And the reason you can't do it is because you're not good enough. You're not physically capable enough. You're not brave enough. You're not strong enough. In fact, you are lacking in all the attributes that we consider to be core to leadership in society. Now, we can have an argument about whether or not those are the right attributes to be core to society. We can also have an argument about whether or not warfare in general is good for society. But the reality where we live is that warfare is a prominent part of every country in the world. And when you deny women the right to participate in it, you are actually 
very significantly impacting gender equality because you are telling women they are incapable and you are ignoring all the historical examples of women being capable and being more than capable. That was Sarah Percy, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Her book, Forgotten Warriors, A History of Women on the Frontline, is out now, published by John Murray. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.